I'd say it's good to see you all this morning, but I can't see you. But hey, I, I'm Greg Boyd, a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills, and I just feel led to do this. Um, didn't plan on this, but I feel like uh, as a body, you know, whatever we can do together, there's a, it's just a kingdom principle that there's power in that. There's power in unity and focus. So could we just for a moment here uh, take, a, take a moment and, and pray as a community uh, for this tiny home project that we're doing, this fundraiser, uh, for the folks that are as bad as it is uh, for all of us in this season that we're in. Uh, imagine being in this pandemic out on the street without a home. So let's just pray. Uh, that's just talking to God. Nothing fancy about it. Uh, you can close your eyes if you want to. You don't have to. Uh, but Jesus is in his room. His spirit is right here, and we're just talking with him. Uh, so focus your hearts. Uh, Lord, we uh, put before you uh, this tiny home project. We pray, God, that you be moving in the hearts of people. Uh, give us a compassion for the homeless and the poor uh, that reflects your compassion on the homeless and the poor. Um, these folks who are out on the street uh, suffering through what we're all suffering through, but without any sort of recourse, Lord, we pray for them. We pray for their safety. We pray for their well-being. And even right now, even though the coming together of this village is, is sometime in the future, um, but right now, Lord, uh, be working behind the scenes in the way that, that only you can do to be raising up the right people that should be in these homes and raising up the right volunteers that should be part of this program to come around these folks, Lord God. We pray blessing over this that it could be a powerful witness uh, of, of the church's concern for the poor, a, a powerful testimony uh, reflecting God's heart for those who are on the outside of things and losers in the world system. Bind us together. You not unify us as we go through the season, even though we're not physically present together. Lord, weave us together more strongly spiritually as we together focus our hearts and minds on doing what you've called us to do and being who you've called us to be in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. So we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. We're talking more specifically about the Beatitudes. Uh, and today we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, the second of the Beatitudes, uh, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And we're, we're entitling this, this uh, uh series unexpected because we'll see that all the things that Jesus says here with the Beatitudes are, are radically unexpected. They're, they're surprising. We get used to hearing them, so they're not surprising to us maybe, but, but when you get, their, get into their actual meaning, they're, they're really surprising. And this message <coughs> is being entitled, Good Morning. I, it's, it's one of the cleverest titles I've ever come up with. I do say so myself. Good morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, ba-boom-ching, good morning. There's good morning and there's bad morning, and we'll be talking about that. Uh, before I actually get into the passage, though, I want to do a little setup. Um, Finish the setup that I started last week, and I'll, I'll be upfront with this. <laughs> the setup is a little bit ADD. All right, so we're going to cover a lot of different ground, but it's all related. If you're ADD, you'll, you'll, you'll catch this. Um, but I'll, I'll start by talking about what the blessing is, and, and then I, I'm going to uh, just divert for a second to talk about a little bit more about Jesus' authority that we talked about uh, uh, two weeks ago, or last week, I guess it was. Does anyone else have this COVID? It's kind of a COVID-19 timing problem. I have a timing problem anyways, but something about, someone referred to it as being in the fog of the pandemic, where you just... Days run together. Sometimes uh, last week can feel like a year ago. Other times last week feels like yesterday. It's just, isn't it? Did you share some of that? Maybe I'm the only one, but it's, it's a weirdness. Anyways, whenever I talked last, um, we, we, we talked about Jesus' authority, and I'll revisit that. We're also going to then touch on this question of uh, how is it that some of what Jesus teaches contradicts the Old Testament? How, how do we handle that? Because uh, we'll see in the Sermon on the Mount that some of what he does, in fact, we'll see it today. He flatly contradicts some things in the Old Testament. Uh, and then I'll, I'll um, um, talk about uh, the, the basic principles of how to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. Things like that. So a lot of ground, and that's just in the first 15 minutes. So get ready, because then we'll get into the meat of this topic. So uh, here's the deal. Uh, the word beatitude just means blessing or a gift. Makarios in Greek. It's a gift. Something that, or good fortune that comes your way. And in Jewish literature, blessings are almost always connected to the covenant. Um, the keeping covenant results in blessings, whereas not keeping covenant results in a curse, covenantal curse. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was basically, basically the blessing was a reward for keeping the law, abiding by the law. 
Uh, there's two types of blessings that we find in, in Jewish literature. Um, uh, first, you have blessings in this world. Like you're blessed with a, a newborn baby, a healthy baby. You're blessed with a great job and you're blessed with good health. All things in this world. But there's also then, and we find this coming later on in the Old Testament and around the time of Jesus, this becomes quite uh, more common, where the focus is on the, the next life, on the, the coming kingdom, the future blessings. And so there, it's, if you live a certain way in covenant with God, it will lead you to this blessed state in the afterlife, in the next, in, in the, the, the next life. It's, I was going to say in the next world, but it's the same world, it's just a different time period. So you have these two kind of things. In the Old Testament, you've got to know, it's almost, they're almost all, all the blessings are focused on this life. So the in terms of the covenant, and you can read this in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, but you can read it other places as well. Um, the, if, if you walk with God, if you keep the law, well, then you're going to be blessed. You're going to have prosperity. You'll have military victory. You're going to have your own sovereignty. Uh, you won't be under anyone's oppressive hand, and you'll be on the promised land. But if you don't walk with God, if you don't keep covenant, well, then you're under the covenantal curse. And then you'll experience poverty, and you'll have military defeat. You'll be oppressed. Um, you'll, 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 you'll find yourself living in other people's territory. You'll be off the land, or if you're on the land, you're going to be under someone else's control. And so um, um, those blessings and the cursings. The curse can be summed up with just one word, really, and that's exile. Uh, to be in exile, to be off the land, to be estranged from the promises of God, uh, you're in exile. And even if you're on the land, as, as the people were in Jesus' time, but they weren't in control. The Romans were running things. They're exiled from the promise of God because the promise was that you'd be on the land and you'll be sovereign and you'll be prosperous. They're having none of that. They're under the covenantal curse. It doesn't mean that God's out there cursing them, I curse you, and, and pulling all the strings to make them poor and to, you know, make them defeated. No, all it comes down to is the curse happens when God just says, okay, I'm going to let you go your own way. I, I got to let you go your own way. You can read. It's also called the wrath of God. It's God saying with a grieving heart, I got to let you go. You read about that in Romans 1, for example. Uh, but they're under the curse. Now, Jesus revises uh, the Old Testament's uh, ideas on blessing and curses in, in two ways. First, all of his blessings are future-oriented. We'll see this in the Beatitudes. Uh, we're to be living a life that is, is, is oriented toward, towards the future coming kingdom and uh, living in a long story, not a short story. And so Jesus is saying, live with a view towards what is blessed, not right now necessarily, but what will be, turn out to be blessed later on. He's not denying that there are covenantal blessings that accrue to us in this life. The New Testament is clear about that. It's, it's the best way to live. It's, it's a blessed way. But, uh, but the focus is on the coming kingdom. Uh, because the New Testament is very realistic that in this life, we can have a lot of woes. It, 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 in this life, you can walk with God and not be blessed. But you're blessed if you keep your orientation towards what is coming uh, down the road. So Jesus, all the future blessings are, 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 all the blessings are oriented towards the future. The second thing that Jesus does, and this one's really, really radical, is he takes the blessings and cursings of uh, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, uh, and he turns them on their head. He reverses them. Uh, so the curses turn out to be blessings, and the blessings turn out to be curses. I mean, it's just, so in the, in the Old Testament, you're blessed if you're wealthy. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Just turns it on its head. Uh, Old Testament, you have blessed are you when, you're, when, when things are going well, when, when you're happy, when you're fortunate in this life. But Jesus, we'll see here this morning, says, blessed are you when you mourn, when you're mourning in this life. Uh, try to appreciate how shocking that would have been, especially to his original audience. Uh, it, it's, I mean, it's shocking for anyone to say, blessed are those who are mourning, because we always regard those who are mourning as being unfortunate. Oh, they're, look, they're in mourning. That's weird enough, but imagine if you've been taught as a Jewish person all your life that, that the opposite is true, that the blessings in this life are good fortune and wealth and whatever, and now Jesus comes and says the opposite. And all these folks, including Jesus, regard the Old Testament as being divinely inspired. It's the Word of God. And yet here Jesus is taking the word of God and reversing it. What is up with that? Uh, this guy not only thinks he has an authority that's on, the, on, on a par with the Old Testament, which is to say on a par with God, but he puts his, his authority above that, which is only God could possibly do. Uh, this is why uh, Matthew says in, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that the crowds were shocked by his authority. He never had anyone spoken like this. His exousia. The, 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 he didn't speak like the normal scribes, like a normal teacher is supposed to speak. He speaks with his authority as though he was God. And we saw last week that, that he has claims that go along with that. 
which in a first century Jewish context are just outrageous. I've come down from heaven to do the will of my Father, and, and you have to honor me the way you honor the Father, and if you see me, you see the Father, and so on and so on. He makes his outrageous claims. And that forces the question, and I just want to keep on bringing it up because I realize we have new folks who are joining us uh, each week here. But it forces this important question, raised it last week, and that is, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think he is? Because the guy walking around making claims like he's God and putting, speaking with authority as though he was God, uh, we usually think those people are crackpots because they usually are. It's just that crackpots don't usually go around and living a sinless life and, and, and uh, exemplifying this perfect love and healing people of their sicknesses and freeing people from demons and raising people from the dead and then right, himself rising from the dead. That usually doesn't happen with crackpots. The alternative that the gospel authors offer us is that they're telling the truth. Uh, he really is this. He's not a crackpot. I've got a lot of reasons for thinking Jesus wasn't wacko. And so that's why I decided to bow my knee call him, confess him to be Lord of my life. Uh, it raises another question, though, and that's this. Uh, if the whole Bible is inspired, how can Jesus be contradicting what we found in the inspired Old Testament? How is that possible? Uh, a lot of us were taught that if the Bible is the Word of God, it can't have any contradictions. It's got to be errorless. Uh, the answer that, the early, that some people in the early church gave is, I think, the right one, and it, it's just this. You read Origen and Gregory of Nyssa and John Cassian and some others. They they, 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 they saw that a lot of what we find in the Old Testament just is not compatible with what, what's revealed about God in Jesus Christ. And the way they explained it was to say that God was stooping to meet people where they were at in the Old Testament. Uh, see, they understood that God is love. And they understood that love is not coercive or manipulative. Uh, they understood that along with the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, that love is kind and love is patient. Love is never rude. Love, love, love keeps no account of wrongs. Uh, lo, love is, is, uh, uh, defers to others. Uh, and God is love. God is 1 Corinthians 13. And so God's not mani mani manipulative or coercive. He doesn't perfect your speaking ability when he calls you to speak, for example. And that's God's great sense of humor. I had 12 years of speech therapy. I'm happy to talk halfway normal, let alone be a public speaker. What's up? God does weird things sometimes. So they, most importantly, they understood that the Bible defines love by pointing us to the cross. 1 John 3, 16. Here is how we know what love is. Okay, this is the definition of love. Don't get your definition of love from some rock song you heard or from some poem you read or what some person told you or whatever. Keep your eyes focused on the cross. Everything in the New Testament is oriented around the cross. Here's how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so also we should lay down our life for one another. That's what love is. Love is self-sacrificial, other-oriented. It's anything but coercive. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that the cross is the power of God. That's the kind of power God uses. That's the, that's the kind of power God is. And so God works by means of love, which is influential, but never coercive or manipulative. What is it with that word today? Manipulative. Say it ten times. Manipulative, manipulative, manipulative. Okay. So there you go. It's not manipulative. So God doesn't do a lobotomy on the minds of his people to just kind of download all truth into their brains when he inspires the Bible. He doesn't turn the biblical authors into automatons when he inspires them. Um, he, there, if he works by means of influential love rather than coercion, there comes a point, he influences towards truth, but there comes a point where God's got to pause and God's got to stop and allow them to be who they are and embrace them as they are. That's God stooping to accommodate the fallen state of his people, their, their, their false beliefs, their false customs, their cultural conditioning, and all the rest. He's not going to lobotomize them out of that, so he has to use them as they are. So when we read the Bible, we've got to know that when God breathes, it's all God breathed, but that doesn't mean that, 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 that God just took over the brains of the people that he inspired. What you find in the Bible is, is God influencing people always towards truth, but God also humbly stooping to allow those people to be people, to have their own thoughts, their own minds, their, their own decisions, and, and so he accepts them as they are. Now we know the, the direction that God's always moving towards because it's culminated in Jesus Christ and especially on the cross. So that's the criteria that we use in reading the Bible. And, and I just try this on. Whenever, whenever you're reading the Old Testament and you come upon things that are not consistent with what we know about God uh, in Jesus Christ, you come upon portraits of God that just look a whole lot like all the other ancient Near Eastern gods that surround Israel, but they don't look much at all like Jesus. When you come to those things, 
I submit to you to have the kind of faith that you have when you believe in that, that, that the cross reveals God. You have, when, when, when we say the cross reveals God, it's not the surface that reveals God. The surface reveals us. The ugliness of the surface that, that reveals the, the severity of sin. But what reveals God is what we by faith know is happening behind the scenes. That God is stooping to meet us where we're at, to enter into solidarity with us in the midst of our sin in order to redeem us and save us. And that reveals what God's like, so that reveals what God's always been like, including what God was like when he inspired the Bible. Um, and so, so read it, knowing that sometimes the surface isn't what's going to reveal God. The surface, when I come upon a picture of God that says, you know, slaughter them all, men, women, children, even the animals, you know, don't let anything that breathes live. Well, Jesus reveals the Father, and the Father uh, is, loves the righteous and the unrighteous and, and tells us to swear off all violence because that's what reflects the character of God. So when I come upon a portrait of God that's genocidal, uh, that tells me a lot about what the people at the time thought. But what reveals God is the fact that God still stuck with these people. He, he stooped to embrace these people and work with these people as they are, including the, with their beliefs about him being an ancient Near Eastern genocidal God. The whole thing is revelatory. The question is, is, do you have the eyes to see the revelation? And you have the eyes to see the revelation when, when you read the whole thing through the lens of Christ, knowing that this is what God really is like. Now we can read the Bible and see where God was influencing and where the hearts of people were suppressing what God was doing. So why then are the blessings of the Old Testament all immediate? Gregory of Nazianzen, uh, he's a, a fourth century uh, brilliant theologian, uh, he said, to understand that, you have to understand progressive revelation. Precisely because God won't manipulate people to download all truth into their brains, uh, teaching them is going to be a process, a long process. Uh, it shows the patience of God. And, and he likens all of humanity to one person. And he basically says this, uh, you know, God has to raise us up to be the people that, we're, that, that he, he knows that we can be. But before you can walk, you've got to learn to crawl. And you've got to learn to walk before you can learn to run. And you've got to learn to run a little bit before you can ever hope to run a marathon. It's an educational process. And so we should be, the way, same way parents talk differently to their children when they're one-year-old and two-year-old than when they're 20, so also God treats people differently uh, depending on where they are in the progress of revelation. God's always the same. Truth is always the same. It's the people that are different. And God, being the all-loving God he is, well, he's, he's flexible. He, he relates to people as they are. Uh, if you want to know more about that, and if you're hearing this for the first time, uh, that maybe is kind of a mind-boggling sort of thing. You might want to listen to that portion of the message again a couple of times. I've got uh, two books out there on this topic. One's called Cross Vision, um, which is the kind of layperson's uh, version of this. And if, if you're a geek head, you might want to go to uh, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, because I wrote that just for us geek types. The bottom line, though, here's this, uh, that... that um, it means that we are to believe it, 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 that God is as beautiful as he's revealed to be in Jesus Christ. And that is just so important, to lock it in, that God looks, this is the character of God. God's the kind of God that would offer his life for a lost race of people like you and me and for every individual in there. We've got to lock it in. When Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father, lock that in. That, that, that's the truth. That anchor that. Whether you can make sense of the Old Testament or not, lock this in. God looks like Jesus Christ. So God's not partly Christ-like and partly genocidal and partly legalistic and partly whatever else you find in the Bible. No, God is Christ-like, cross-like, all the way down to the core of God's being. That's why it says in Hebrews 1.3 that, that, that in the Son, in contrast to what we have in the past, in the Son, uh, we have the one who is in the, the, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's very uh, hypostasis, uh, his essence. God is Christ-like all the way down, all the way down. One, one last word uh, before I conclude this ADD preliminary uh, uh, setup. Probably the most common mistake that Western people make as we read the Sermon on the Mount is that we interpret its teachings as sort of ethical rules. Uh, here's the things that we're supposed to do to get right with God. If we just live this way, think these thoughts, do these deeds, well, then we'll be right with God, and then we'll be in the, the, the eternal kingdom. Now, the idea that you can behave your way into rightness with God, that's the, one of the purposes of the Old Testament law was to show the impossibility of doing that. Paul gets at this in Galatians 3. Uh, you, you can't behave your way into right-relatedness with God. I don't care how holy you are. 
You're trying to, as I said last week, you're trying to jump the Grand Canyon, and even if you only miss it by a foot, it doesn't make any difference. How good a jumper you are is irrelevant when you're trying to jump the Grand Canyon. So also, how righteous you are is irrelevant when it comes to getting right with God. Uh, it's impossible. In fact, Paul calls the very mindset of trying to get right with God on the basis of behavior, he calls that being under a curse. Galatians 3. All who live according to the law are under a curse. What is going on in the Sermon on the Mount? He's not giving general rules that everybody's supposed to sort of adhere to. Actually, the the Sermon on the Mount is, as Bertrand Russell said, a, a lunatic sermon if you're not reading it. Uh, with an eye towards the kingdom. It, it's, it's, as a general rule, it doesn't, it doesn't make any practical sense. Turn the other cheek, love your enemies, come on, that will get you killed. Rather, most scholars agree that, that what is being articulated in the Sermon on the Mount is that uh, Jesus is giving a description of what kingdom life looks like. When a community is living under the reign of God, uh, well, these are the kind of behaviors that are going to come out of that. We don't do these behaviors to get right with God. You get right with God by having trust in Jesus Christ as the revelation of God and as your Savior. That's how you get right with God. Now, once you're right with God, there's a new life coming into you, and you're part of the community then that is going to exemplify these these behaviors. But they're descriptions of what it looks like to be in the kingdom, not the preconditions for getting in the kingdom. Lock that in. Um, Two things to note about this what scholars are saying about what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. Note the, the emphasis on community. See, we, we tend to, we individualistic Western Christians, we tend to read the Bible as, as a, a letter to us individually. It's about me. But the truth is, and it is about you, but it's about you because it's about a we. It's about me because it's about we, but it's not me apart from the we. Everything written in the New Testament is written for a we, a community of people. Uh, everything written presupposes that people are living in, in rather intimate community. They've got people involved in their life helping them live this out. Because the truth is we can't hope to live this out in any kind of consistent way uh, unless we're doing it in relationship with other people. You're swimming upstream big time if you're going to live out the Sermon on the Mount. And, and we, by nature, tend to conform to who's around us. We're, it's mimetic theory. Uh, we, we, we tend to imitate others unconsciously, if not consciously. And so we need to have people around us who also are aspiring to move in the same direction if we hope to accomplish this. And the second thing to note about this definition of what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount is that it's about a community, but a community that's anchored in Jesus, getting its life from Jesus, having its hope in Jesus, revolving its life around Jesus. Uh, it's when the bride is full of life uh, by virtue of her relationship to the bridegroom that the bride then begins to conform to the image of the bridegroom, and that looks like the Sermon on the Mount. It's an expression of the life that we have for free by virtue of our relationship with Christ. Stanley Hauerwas, one of my uh, favorite thinkers, um, really is, he gets, he, he gets the kingdom in a, in a remarkable way. He said this, kind of summing up the whole point on the Sermon on the Mount. Stanley, oh, on, uh, over here. Okay. He says, the message of the Sermon on the Mount cannot be separated, abstracted out from the messenger. He never separate the message from the messenger. If Jesus is the eschatological Messiah, eschatological just means related to the future. Um, The eschaton is the end of the age. So at the end of the age, he'll be shown to be the Messiah. And if that's true, then he has made it possible through his death and resurrection for us to live in accordance with the life envisioned in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon is but the form of his life. it, it, It reveals, all, all these teachings reveal aspects of his own life. Um, and his life is the prism through which the sermon is refracted. So throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we'll be showing how Jesus in different ways exemplifies this. Uh, he, he, his life is an illustration of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't read it as a bunch of ethical rules. Read it as road signs that you're on the right way, heading towards uh, the, the, the coming kingdom. All right. End of ADD preliminary word. Let's dive into the meat of the message now. Rule number one of public speaking Never chew ice while you're public speaking. It's really bad habit. It's just really nasty. Okay, so I'll mention you on that if you need help. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. It's unexpected. For anyone to say that is unexpected. Uh, we always regard mourning as a negative thing, a sad thing, a bad thing, right? Here comes this guy who says, no, those folks are blessed. Uh, that's unexpected enough. But as, as I said earlier, especially if you are raised you've raised all your life to believe that God has said the opposite in the Old Testament. This is shocking, shocking stuff. 
He taught with an authority that no one else had. But you do have a precedent for his teaching in the Old Testament. And I don't have time to, to, to go look at this passage. But uh, scholars generally agree that there's, in various Beatitudes, you have echoes of the Old Testament. Um, even though it, he's, he's turning the covenant on its head, there was, there's things that in the Old Testament itself that anticipated that. So in Isaiah 61, Yahweh is speaking to his people who are now in exile in Assyria. Uh, they're under the covenantal curse. And Yahweh says to them in Isaiah 61, he goes, uh, all you who are mourning, I will comfort. This exile is not permanent. It will come to an end, and I will comfort you in your mourning. These are folks that are, are, are suffering the curse of the covenant. God has let them go, and the result has been that they are now uh, living in oppressive circumstances. So these are people who are mourning their oppressive circumstances. They're mourning the fact that, that they're mourning their own sin that put them in those circumstances. They're mourning the fact that they're away from their home and they're not living a natural existence under the authority of, of Assyria. They're mourning the fact that they're estranged from the blessings of God. They're mourning the fact that they are living in a world at that time where God's will was not being done on earth as it is in heaven. So, so when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he's not just talking about your run-of-the-mill depression. Lucky are you when you're depressed, because you're not lucky when you're depressed. Depression itself is either good or bad. It's just a thing in this fallen world. But he's talking specifically about the mourning of those who are in exile. The mourning of exiles. It's a mourning of a community of, of folks that are on the outsiders of the world system, the losers in the world systems. The outsiders are made insiders. The losers are made insiders. Uh, there's a community that is mourning their own brokenness and they're mourning the brokenness of the world and they're aware of the pain of the curse. It's a community that is aware that God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. And they yearn to see God finally come and, and fix the world, to set the world right. You, you, you read, you pick up that yearning in the New Testament in a variety of ways, but the clearest, I think, is in 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul prays this prayer, Maranatha. Maranatha, which is this Aramaic for, for come quickly, come quickly, Lord. Lord, return quickly. They're yearning for this. Set the world right. It's broken. It's painful. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And that kind of mourning, mourning for God to set the world right, mourning because the world and you yourself are broken, that is good mourning. That, that, that's, that's the kind of mourning Jesus is commending here. It's the mourning of an exile. In fact, the New Testament several times calls us exiles refers to us as exiles. That's the mindset that we're supposed to have. Uh, here's what it says in 1 Peter. Oh yeah, I gotta go this way. 1 Peter says, I should have my verses up here, but I will next week. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles, aliens and exiles, we're gonna see ourselves as this in this present world, to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. In this present world, uh, Giving in to desires is, is kind of the norm. Uh, you want to get as many of those desires fulfilled as possible. But Peter says, no, you guys are, are, are to be exiles. In a world where desires are just kind of given into, uh, it's just the run of the mill, you're to be the oddballs, the aliens, the exiles who declare war on that. Because you realize that you're headed for a future kingdom. Uh, in Philippians 3, Paul talks, talks uh, this way. He says, our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, to have your citizenship in a different land means that you're, you're, uh, you're an alien here. Uh, he says that we're ambassadors here. We're foreigners here. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, when you hear our citizenship is in heaven, uh, I encourage you not to think of it as, as like Jesus is going to come from heaven and grab us and then take us back to heaven and leave the earth. Uh, we are in exiles because that's sometimes called escapist theology. Jesus is going to come and rescue us from this world that's going to hell in a handbasket and take us away and we'll forever be in heaven and not on the earth. And folks who adopt that mindset tend to have very little concern about how we treat the animals and how we treat the environment because, hey, it's all going to be wiped away, right? Escapist theology. From a New Testament perspective, folks, we're not exiles because our, our home is far away, like on a different planet called heaven. Uh, no, we're exiles because our home, what we're, what we're created for, what, what is natural to us is in the future. Uh, we're exiles now because our home is in the future. Uh, the biblical model of salvation is not that, that, that God's going to take us away from earth to go to heaven. We don't leave earth to go to heaven. The biblical model of salvation is that we partner with God to bring heaven down to earth. 
That's why the Lord tells us to pray this prayer. Uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God cares about the earth. He doesn't give up on his real estate. That's why in the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation 21, uh, John sees the, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, coming down to earth. And, and, and the, the, the lamb is the light of this, 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 new, this new home. And that's where we'll forever be. A new heaven and a new earth where heaven has come down to earth. The, the two have become one. Uh, see, a lot of folks assume that when Jesus says, I, I go to prepare a place for you. This is in John 14. That where I am, you may also be. I was always taught that that means he's going away. He's preparing a place. And then he's going to come back and rapture us out and take us back to his place. And there's a lot of mansions there. But we see in Revelation that it's the opposite. He brings it down to us. He brings the, his place that he's preparing down to us. And it's on this earth, and that's where we'll ever be. It, I, I taught a class one time on eschatology. And uh, I had students do research. I'd find every verse in the Bible that could possibly be describing the final state of affairs. What's the final state of affairs that God's aiming at here? And all but maybe two or three, including the passage that says, I go to prepare a place for you, all but a few of them were very explicitly on the earth. The final state of affairs is on the earth. And there's animals there. The lion lays down with the lamb and all the rest. And that's a shouldn't surprise us because God is not just redeeming human beings. He's redeeming the entire creation. The entire creation is involved in the fall. And the entire creation is involved in, 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 in redemption. Um, but it's on this earth. So God's plan is for us to be living here with taking care of the animals, reflecting his character as we care for the animals and care for the environment uh, forever. And so if we're going to be doing this forever, I suggest you we start practicing now. <laughs> you start getting used to this because this is what we'll be doing forever and ever. So we're exiles because we are, our orientation is for that blessed future state that, that Jesus is preparing for, for the entire planet, that new cosmos that's coming. And, 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 and because our orientation is there, we know how the world's supposed to be, how it will be, it makes us aliens uh, in this present world. Plus, on top of that, uh, what intensifies that sense of alienation is that we are called to live that future world as much as possible in the present. It's what theologians call realized eschatology. That, that, that what will be true at the end times is supposed to be true of us now. And that's how we put on display uh, the reality of this coming kingdom and invite people into this coming kingdom. Here's where the world's headed, and you're invited to be uh, a part of that. So someday we know that the world will be, you know, free of all injustice. So we, 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 we strive to purge all injustice out of our life now and to live just lives as much as possible. Someday there'll be no more sin on this planet, so we try to purge sin out of our life now. Someday there'll be no more pride, uh, and so we, we practice humility now. Someday there'll be no more violence, and so we strive to purge all violence from our life now. Someday the world will be free of all hatred, and so we purge hatred out of our life now to put on display whatever will be true then, we wanna, as much as possible, put it on display now, make it true now. And, and that sets us in conflict with fundamental aspects of, of, uh, of the world that we live in right now. Um, that intensifies our sense of being aliens and exiles. We're supposed to be weirdos in this present world because the present world system isn't right. So knowing where the world, what the world's supposed to be like and knowing what uh, it will someday be like and practicing what it will be like now, well, that highlights the contrast with this current fallen world and that inevitably creates mourning in us. Uh, mourning for the brokenness, the way that things just aren't, the, they're not the way they're supposed to be. It creates a yearning in our heart for God to come and fix this mess. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That is good mourning. It, it, it's, well, it's not unlike what we're going through in this pandemic. I, I think all of us are in various degrees mourning. Michelle Obama this last week described it as having a low-grade kind of depression. She says, I think we have, as a nation, we have this kind of low-grade depression. And I, I think that's that fog I was talking about. And we're mourning because the world, we, we know the world's not supposed to be this way. America's not supposed to be this way. We mourn because we're supposed to be able to go to church. You know, doggone it all. It's just normal to be able to come together, go to church, hear the word together, celebrate together, hug one another. It's normal to hug one another. It's normal to freely hug your grandkids without worrying about whether you're killing them or not. It's just such a bizarre time. It's normal to go to baseball games and football games and go out dancing and, 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 and to have fun and not be 
thinking you're giving yourself a death sentence in the process. It's normal to send your kids to school and not have to worry about are they going to catch something that's going to harm them or harm you or harm your grandparents that are living in the house. It's just such a bizarre, weird, it, it creates a kind of an alienation. It just feels all unnatural. It's not normal to be sitting socially distanced in a restaurant and then someone coughs and now you're wondering, that could be my death sentence. This could be it. That's just, it's a weird thing. Everyone, someone coughs, everyone's quiet. Like, is that COVID? Now, maybe it was just clearing his throat. I gave a, a, a friend, uh, God bless you, friend, uh, a ride the other day. Um, and, and I don't know if this person practices social distancing or not. So I, I said, okay, well, here's the rule. I, I would, I'd love to give you a ride, but we have to ride with the windows down and uh, mask on. Because I've got a little bubble. I've got to protect that. I've got a little kid there. I don't want any infection going in there, blah, 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 blah. So, and I don't want to give it to you, and you don't want to give it to me, so let's wear a mask. So we're going fine. But every time this guy would get excited about something he wanted to tell me, he'd pull the mask down and say, well, did you know, did you know, did you know? And I would say, hey, you know, it doesn't do you very much good uh, to have a mask on if you pull it down when you talk. It just kind of defeats the purpose. So could you put the mask back on? Three times I told him that. Hey, don't, don't forget the mask. But I'm thinking... If he has it, that bug could be going right up my nose right now, and I could have it. And it's just such a, all that social distancing thing, it's very, very, very necessary. I, I encourage you to do it, but it's just weird. Like, hi, virtual hugger. I don't know, what are your rules? Here's our rules. Uh, it's just, it's just. And so it makes us more, because we're estranged from all that's natural, from so much that's natural. It, it's knowing how it's supposed to be that causes us to mourn the way it is now. And it causes us to yearn for it to be over. Come quickly, uh, come quickly, vaccination. Now the good news is I hear that the vaccination is gonna be possibly available, uh, completed by the end of the year. Uh, and the guy I was listening to last night said, uh, and we, we hope to have it available for the general public by next fall. Next fall. Uh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Uh, that's morning. And see, the morning that kingdom people are supposed to have over their present world is that kind of morning. Knowing that it doesn't have to be the way, this way, it's not supposed to be this way, it's unnatural to be this way, causes us to mourn and to yearn. And that's good morning. That's good morning. And, and it leads to the prayer, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We mourn as a form of protest. If you mourn the state of this, and see, even when we return to normal uh, and get this bug behind us, whenever, whatever normal is going to be, the normal that we'll return to is not our normal, kingdom people. Our normal is, is set by the coming kingdom. And, and, and we're to be practicing the coming kingdom now. And so whatever the normal is that the world returns to, it's still going to be broken. And, and, and the, the contrast between the brokenness and where we're going is what causes us to mourn and to, and to yearn for him to return. Um, we're to be a kingdom, a good morning community, kingdom people. Uh, to be in the kingdom is your good morning community. Um, you look for the coming of the kingdom and, and put our trust in that. And the contrast with the present world, the beauty of what's coming contrasts with the ugliness of what is, and it causes us to mourn. We want to be done with it. So it's like this. Someday, someday, every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every ethnic group will come and gather around the throne of God. And we're told about that. And they'll be united as this family, a, a union. And the one new humanity that Jesus died to create will be perfectly manifested. And the diversity will be part of the beauty rather than being part of the problem. Someday, that will be true. But currently, as you well know, that's not a reality. We're not a big loving family appreciating the wonderful diversity of the human race made in the image of God. Uh, we find people set against each other, trying to oppress one another based on the color of their skin, based on their ethnicity. We have xenophobia running rampant. Got racism all over the place. Uh, it's not the way it's supposed to be, and that should break our hearts. Seeing this, knowing what it could be, what it will be, but it's not now, it should break our hearts, and it makes us yearn to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want to see this one new humanity manifested. We want to see these divisions and this hatred and the stupidity of the whole thing coming to an end. We mourn and we yearn. And someday we know that when the kingdom's set up in fullness, uh, that when the creation's finally set right, we're not going to have any more COVID-19. And we're not going to have any more the parasites and the viruses, the bacteria, the cancer, the diseases that we have running rampant. Now someday, someday we'll enjoy the health that God always wanted people to enjoy. But that day is not yet, obviously. We got COVID-19 killing however many millions of people, uh, thousands of people, how many infections we have. It, it's, and that should make us mourn. When the pain, we see the pain that it causes. 
And, and we say, Lord, fix this. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's good morning. That's good morning, Maranatha. And someday, someday we're told every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We sing about it all the time, Philippians 2. Someday we'll be transformed, fully transformed, freed from the bondage uh, of the sin, the addictions, the afflictions that we carry around in this life. Someday we'll see him as he is, it says in 1 John 3. For we shall be like him. We'll be like him, and if we can see him as he is in all of his beauty, and we'll be participating in that, and sharing in the love of the triune God. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but that's not today. Today, we've got this, this incredible smorgasbord of ideas about what God is or who God is and what's true and whether there is a God or not. And even the folks who believe in God, very few of them, I submit to you, as far as I can see, very few really know God in all of his beauty. Very few trust that God is as beautiful as he's revealed to be in Jesus Christ. Uh, even among most Christians, they have kind of a composite God because they just blend together the images of the Bible and come up with this, oh, yeah, he's kind of like Jesus, but he's also kind of genocidal. And, and, and because you don't know the, the love of God, they don't know, they never experience that love. They're never transformed by that love. They never discover their kingdom purpose. They, they live lives where they're kind of aimlessly just trying to find meaning in this, that, or the other thing. And it could be so much better, and it ought to be so much different. And that should break our hearts. And knowing how it will be someday and how it is now, the contrast between the beauty that's coming and the ugliness that we now have, that, that, that should make us mourn. And say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's good morning. That's good morning. And that's good yearning. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'll say one other thing here as I wrap it up. What it means to be a community that is in mourning means we have to allow the brokenness to break our heart. Um, we can't block out the brokenness of the world to create a little bubble of uh, our little oasis of happiness. And that's what a lot of folks try to do. Uh, they're aware of it, but it's like, uh, you know what? I, 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 I got my own problems, so la, 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 and you create a little happy bubble. The opposite of good morning is blocking out the pain of the world to create a little happy bubble. Or the opposite of good morning is bad morning. And bad morning happens when you're mourning, but it's not with an orientation towards the future. You're just mourning. Uh, mourning without hope is bad mourning. That's just, you sink into a black hole of despair. Uh, that's not God's intention here. Blessed are those who mourn. If you're mourning, if your mourning is causing you to mourn the brokenness of the world and yearn for it to be fixed, yearn for this coming kingdom, that's good mourning. So this pandemic thing, the morning that we have because of this pandemic is just a natural thing. Any human being who's in an unnatural condition is going to mourn like that. But it will become kingdom mourning if we use the pain of this pandemic to orientate us more towards the future. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This is part of what we are mourning. Um, that's good mourning. It creates yearning. But if it just leaves you flat and wallowing in self-pity, there's, there's nothing virtuous about that and nothing productive about that. Good morning presupposes hope, not despair. Good morning leads to action. If, if you're in bad morning, it, that, that, that leads to paralysis. But a good morning seed, we don't just wait for the future to come. Because we're yearning for it, we're motivated to take action, to do what we can do now, knowing that it won't be totally fixed until the Lord returns, but it should lead to action. We just don't want to sit on our butts and say, hey, Lord, I can't wait for you to fix this. We're to be partnering with God because we're supposed to be living the future now. We partner with God now to bring about that future. That's what we're doing. And it won't be totally brought about until Jesus returns, but that doesn't stop us from doing what we, what we can do now. One last thing, and that is that we need to let the pain of the brokenness in, but you also, and listen to this, you have to know your limits. Um, and people differ a lot on this. The unique thing that we have going on now is that in the last hundred years, we've had the capacity for, by technology to bring all the misery of the world into our living rooms every day. It's called the news. And in a half hour, you're bombarded with pure, undiluted, global misery. <laughs> the news is usually about, here's, here's another terrible thing that happened. Once in a while, on NBC, they'll put on a, you know, a little happy story at the end just to try to recover people to keep them from getting out the razor blade. But, but uh, on the whole, it's just negativity. And I don't know if the human brain was meant to walk around with all of that, being aware of all that negativity 24-7. Uh, most people can't handle it. I can't handle it. Uh, and so I, I know one lady who, when she sees any image of human or animal suffering, um, it, it, it just, just gets seared on her brain. She can't get it out. 
and, uh, and it, it, it creates bad mourning. It, cre- it, it sends her into cynicism uh, and despair. And so she has to get the news from, you know, secondhand from other people, kind of know what's going on in the world. That's kind of extreme, but know your limits. Know your limits. There is a time, let the brokenness in, don't go la la la, create a little, little bubble, but at the same time, don't be overwhelmed. The mourning should be such that it is, it, it, it causes us to be, unex- we don't accept the current world. Okay, so it reminds us that this world that we're living in is not our home. We're aliens. It should be there to remind us that we're aliens. And it should be enough to motivate you to action. But it shouldn't be so much that it overwhelms you into inaction and paralysis. Know your limits. Like everything else, uh, it's about balance. I want to do one more thing. The sermon is now officially done. Thank you very much. But I want to do something we've never done here at Woodland Hills Church, and that is, I want to have a, it's just a brief little confession of mourning, confession of good mourning, a good mourning confession. How's that? Um, we've never had this here because it might have something to do with the fact that, you know, until COVID hit, I wasn't a person who knew how to lament. Uh, and, and so I've never thought of Woodland Hills as a lamenting community. Uh, we're all in process, you guys. I'm discovering things as as I do prepare sermons, I learn things. And, uh, and this is one of the things I'm learning. COVID, miserable, miserable time that we're in. But Vance taught me about uh, the need to take, make space to lament and the need to mourn for good mourning. And we've never done this as a community. I think it's time that we start. Um, it will be odd for you. I, I'm going to ask you to, to confess this out loud. Uh, and maybe, I'm sure you've probably never done that. Stand up in the middle of your living room and confess out loud what we're going to be confessing. Uh, it feels weird to be doing that alone, or maybe you're with your spouse or with some friend or you got kids around or whatever your circumstances are, it's going to feel weird, but I encourage you to do it. There's a power in the confession, and there's a power in unity. Now, you're all alone there in your room, but you're not alone. There are, right now, this moment, watching live stream, I don't know how many, but a, a bunch of people watching this with you, and, and there's a power in that unity, as I started off with. So can we confess this as a union? There's a solidarity here. To be a people who are saying we are going to mourn like this. So Shauna will read, uh, I'll read the first line, um, and then Shauna will lead you in reading the second line, all right? This is a confession of good morning. Are you ready to go? Ready to go. All right. Lord, just bless this confession here, this first ever Woodland Hills good morning confession. When Jesus establishes his kingdom and God's love is all in all, there will be no more hatred, envy, or unforgiveness in the world. We together mourn the hatred, envy, and unforgiveness of our current fallen world, and we grieve over the massive amount of pain it brings. We commit to being a community of people who refuse to hate, who guard against envy, and who forgive others quickly. Maranatha. When the earth has been fully purified by the love of God and God's kingdom is fully established, People from every tribe, tongue, and nation shall be united together as a loving family as we gather around the throne of the Lamb. The one new humanity that Jesus died to create will finally be a beautiful, visible reality. We together Together mourn mourn the the racism, tribalism, and idolatrous nationalism that still characterizes our current fallen world. And we grieve over the massive amount of pain these things bring. We We commit commit to being a community of people who manifest God's one new humanity and who therefore embrace and celebrate the rich diversity of the human race rather than seeing it as a problem. Maranatha. When God's loving reign defines the whole of reality, there will be no more idolatry, greed, gossip, jealousy, pride, lust, pettiness, or rebellion. For the love of God will have burned away everything inconsistent with God's loving character. We We together together mourn the the idolatry, greed, gossip, jealousy, pride, lust, pettiness, and rebellion that characterizes our current fallen world. And we grieve the massive amount of pain it brings. We commit to being a community of people who together strive to stay free from these and any other behaviors and attitudes that harm people and that separate us from the Father's heart. Maranatha. 
When the creation has finally been redeemed from the corrupting curse it is currently under and has been delivered from the bondage to, its bondage to decay, there will be no more sickness, disease, parasites, or viruses like that cursed COVID-19. Mm. Nature will finally reflect the benevolent character of the Creator. The lion will lay down with the lamb, and humans will carry out their mandate to reflect God's benevolent character as we exercise dominion over the earth and the animal kingdom. We, we together, together mourn, mourn the, corruption the corruption of nature, of nature the corruption, corruption of, of our environment, environment and, the and the disregard many have for the, for the welfare of the earth and animal kingdom. We commit to being a people who fulfill God's original mandate to reflect God's benevolent character as we make choices that impact the environment and the well-being of animals. Maranatha. Praise God. Now, see, if you're all here together, we'd be going like, oh, wait, we got one more. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I just wrote it, you know. Uh, when the new creation that Jesus brought by his death, <laughs> how did I forget this? When the new creation that Jesus brought by his death and resurrection is fully manifested, there will be no more enemies and therefore no more violence. People will beat their weapons into farm tools to help grow more food for others. We, we together, together mourn, mourn the, the violence that permeates our culture and the world. We commit to striving by the power of the Spirit to being a community of people who root out violence from our lives, thoughts, and attitudes, and who instead are committed to making peace wherever we find conflict. Maranatha. When the human race has finally been fully reconciled back to God and to one another, there will be no more poverty, homelessness, hunger, or loneliness. The love of the human community will reflect the love of the triune God, and no one shall ever again go without. We, we together, together mourn the, the needless poverty, poverty homelessness, homelessness, hunger, and loneliness that continues to plague our country and the world. We commit to being a community of people who are always willing to share our resources and our time with others who are in need. And, and we, we will consider, consider our service to the least of these to be service to Jesus himself. Maranatha. Amen. 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 Thank you for participating in that with us. That was powerful. Thank you for being here with us today. And we want to remind you that if you want to continue the conversation, you can participate in a gathering group. You can also watch the Musecast that happens on Tuesday afternoons. And if you have a prayer request, if you have a prayer need that you're holding on to right now, we have prayer partners that are ready. They're standing by in Zoom rooms to pray with you so you can enter those now. Thanks so much for joining us. Be blessed.